1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And Father, we just humbly pause to ask once again for the, the grace and the supernatural help of your Holy Spirit as we open the word of God now together collectively as an act of worship towards you, Lord. Would you please write your will onto the fleshly tablet of our hearts this morning through this portion of your spirit-inspired and authoritative word, Lord. We want to honor you, so we pray. Give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. Speak now by your spirit, we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, I think understanding the primary reason for our existence as human beings is an absolutely essential thing if we're going to live properly as well as find some degree of fulfillment and purpose while we're here on this earth. And if you have any question this morning, I want you to know the Word of God teaches very clearly that our primary reason for existence, that is the reason you and I are both alive as individuals, is really to have a personal experience with God and to use our life to glorify God as our creator, to honor and to serve the one who gave us life. That is our primary reason for existence as individuals. And understanding that in doing such helps us to live properly, and it also helps us to find fulfillment and to find purpose. And to the degree that we do that, we find fulfillment and purpose as human beings. To the degree that a person is ignorant of that or neglecting to do that, they will find themselves very unfulfilled and confused. Now, with that being said on an individual level, the question I want to pose as we look at our text this morning is this, is why does the church exist? We know why we exist as individuals, but why does the church exist? And please understand when I use the word church, I'm not talking about the building, but the assembly of the people of God. That is the family of believers, followers of Christ, and what the Bible calls spiritually children of God. So for example, does the church exist just to have another institution on the earth where perhaps we can add a little bit of morality into our lives? to some degree maybe have a little bit of spirituality and to find some form of spirituality. Is that why the church exists? Does the church exist for just maybe some religious routines and so that to some degree we can make our conscience feel a little bit better if maybe we did some things we're not proud of over the last week that we can come and do a few religious practices and help our conscience feel a little bit better? Or does the church exist maybe we might say to find a place where we can enjoy some good, clean spiritual entertainment, a wholesome concert, all the same great light shows and smoke machines and everything else, but at least it's a, it's a wholesome concert and we're getting excited about good and moral things rather than rotten lyrics and maybe part of that as well. We could have someone like a good life coach give us a little motivational speech about how to do life successful and learn some good tips for how to have a good and successful life? Or is the church maybe a place to come together for kind of a spiritual pep rally where maybe we assemble together and we get hyped up and excited and more than anything else, we're just really trying to razz ourselves up and get excited about living a certain way or honoring our conservative values or getting them out there in the world? Or we maybe as the church supposed to be kind of like a community rec center and maybe we're supposed to have really great programs and great things for families and kids and fantastic programs. And maybe perhaps the church, I don't know, is it supposed to be for advancing the causes of social justice and doing what we can to promote social justice causes and doing good and charitable deeds in society, doing what we can to help the poor and make society better or 
Maybe we might think as well, when we look around the church, perhaps as something that's intended to be kind of like a fast, progressive, growing business with lots of customers and lots of money and great and new, exciting facilities and things that we can obtain. And I would say in today's culture, there's definitely some confusion regarding why the church exists, what the purpose of its existence really is. And look, I think the answer should be found not in what we see or not really perhaps in what anyone is currently doing. The answer should be found right here in the word of God because the church was God's idea. It wasn't a human idea to create some institution. It was something God established. And so therefore what God's declared should be what matters, not man's ideas, but what God's intended purpose for the church was. And I would bring to your attention as we begin this morning that the very first time the word church appears in the Bible, it appears on the lips of Jesus, who was God living among us in flesh as a man for a time. The very first time that word shows up, it's during Jesus's earthly ministry, Jesus made this declaration. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, or we might say hell, he said, will not prevail against it. So very clearly, Jesus proclaimed full ownership over the church. The church doesn't belong to any congregation of people. The church doesn't belong to a pastor or a priest or a minister or to a group of... The church belongs to Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. He's the overseer of our souls. The church is a blood-bought institution. Ephesians says that it was a blood-bought bride of Christ that God has ownership over. And Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, I don't know if he'll build our church the way we want to do it as human beings, but he said, I'll build my church. And he promised to do such, and he said that the gates of Hades, that is the tactics, the ideas, the efforts of hell, won't prevail against it. He didn't say they wouldn't come against it. They certainly do. That's what spiritual warfare is. But he says, I won't let such things prevail, succeed against my church, because his authority would be behind it. Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, go into all the world, remember, and he said, and make disciples of all nations. The word disciples means committed followers to a cause. Jesus said that's what we were to go out to do, to make committed followers. He said, and teach them to observe the things I've commanded. And he said, in doing that, I will be with you. In other words, my authority will be with that. My presence will be working together with that. Before we jump into our text, let me draw your attention to one other place where the Bible speaks clearly about the churches in Ephesians 4, and it tells us there this. It adds regarding the purpose of the church in Ephesians 4, telling us that God has given among the church, remember it said, spiritually gifted individuals, pastors, teachers, and it says this, for, here's the key, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to be completely mature as a man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, but speaking the truth in love that we may all grow up into all things to him who is head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does it share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The Bible is very clear what the church is intended to be. And today we find in our verses, as we finish chapter three, another passage in the New Testament that directly addresses in more detail, the purpose of the church. And so we learn from God's instruction manual here to help us understand our true purpose so that with biblical understanding, we can operate and function as a local church the way God gives to us a guidepost of our existence. And surely we assemble to worship God. 
We assemble to give glory to God, to experience his presence, to let his spirit minister. Yet we also are to remember that God wants his family to operate in certain ways. So if you'll look with me in verse 14, once again in our text, Paul says here, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, held up, he says, verse 15, I write, notice, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, that's quite a mouthful there. By this point in our study in 1 Timothy, those verses should become pretty familiar to us. Numerous times in our study, we've repeatedly referenced them from the start of our study in this book because they state the clear direct purpose of the writing of this particular New Testament letter. The Holy Spirit gives it so plain right there. He says, this is the reason I'm writing these very things to you. And therefore, we've referenced this numerous times as we've talked about how Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to Timothy, who was like his protege in ministry. He was an assistant serving together with Paul. And remember, Paul had left Timothy to pastor the local church congregation there in Ephesus, which Paul had initially planted. He had pastored a church and taught it for three years, the word of God. And then as he moved on to do more church planning, he left Timothy there to provide oversight to the local church in Ephesus. And it seems also to provide some oversight of some of the other congregations that were offshoots that the Bible speaks of that came out of the church of Ephesus as well. And the challenge that had arose is some unhealthy people spiritually were trying to misguide the church. And so you remember we saw in chapter 1 where Paul told Timothy to remain there in Ephesus where he had left him, not to give up, not to get fearful, not to cave under the pressure, but to remain faithful at his post that he would make sure that sound biblical doctrine remains central to the church and to the other congregations in the area. And Paul writes this correspondence as sort of an instruction manual to Timothy. He says in our verses here, verse 15, that they would understand as the church how to conduct themselves in the house of God. And so we've talked about how this letter provides instruction to the church family, how the church is to operate, how we are to function as the church as we handle our affairs, as we do things. This letter gives wonderful direction how the local church is to operate and function. It indicates set ways that we are to conduct ourselves in this thing we call the house of God, which is different than how people conduct themselves out in the system of the world. That the church is not to conduct itself like a corporation. The church is not to conduct itself like worldly ideals. The church is to conduct itself as a spiritual institution, a spiritual family in a particular way. And you note that Paul tells Timothy in our verses here, look with me in verse 14, he says, he says, these things I'm writing, though he says, I hope to come to you shortly. So Paul was hoping to be able to return back to Ephesus, to be there with Timothy in the church once again soon, but he says very clearly here, verse 15, but if I am delayed. In other words, Paul was factoring in, you know what? I sense I might get delayed from getting there, though I want to be there soon. In case I get delayed, I'm writing these things. You know, Paul had come to learn that at times he encountered interruptions, not only in his Christian life, but also in the midst of Christian work. That at times interruptions would happen even sometimes, let me go so far as to say, satanic hindrances that would hold him back from doing at times things he wanted to in the work of the Lord. Sometimes those interruptions delayed him and they were God's intervention. And when you read the book of Acts and you look at God directing the Holy Spirit working through Paul's life, you read the New Testament letters at times, it was God's intervention. Sometimes God would interrupt Paul or kind of hold back Paul from doing something because he had something else he wanted to do with him instead. On one occasion, we read specifically in Acts 16 where the Holy Spirit hindered Paul from going into one community because ultimately he wanted him to go to another community. 
and we see this pattern. At times, God would interrupt and God would delay things because God wanted something else to be done first or something to be done different. Other times as well, Paul had also learned that sometimes that delay came from satanic hindrance. Right now, the ladies are going through 1 Thessalonians in their study together in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. Paul specifically says to the church, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. In other words, Paul was able to discern the reason he could not get to where he wanted to was it wasn't just some circumstantial challenge. It was actually spiritual warfare. It was satanic hindrance that had to be prayed through and persevered, and it was spiritual warfare. Regardless, Paul had learned to become accustomed to the wisdom and stewardship of using flexibility in his spiritual life and being open to that reality. Paul said, I plan to come, but if I am delayed, he said, I'm writing to you. And the idea of Paul saying, in case I'm delayed, I'm writing to you instead. Where I'm writing to you, we might say, as a, as a backup option. <laughs> because I want you to know these things. I want you to be instructed. The idea is Paul wanted to assure them that they got this important instruction to conduct themselves a certain way in the house of God. Why? Because Paul understood the vital importance that the church would operate the way God intends for it to so that the church would be healthy and believers would flourish spiritually. And if I can, let me, in light of that and what Paul's saying there, make a brief application of what I think is wisdom really in the spiritual life, and that is this. You notice that Paul made plans. As a spirit-filled believer walking in fellowship with the Lord, Paul made plans. If he sensed that he was to do something, or he desired to do something, he planned and clearly he pursued it. That's what he says, I'm planning to come to you. Now, I think it's important to realize there is nothing wrong or unspiritual about making plans. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Proverbs, and again and again, the Bible speaks of wisdom and stewardship and plan. There's nothing wrong with making plans with being a practical person. As we pray and we sense we're supposed to do something, where we maybe we believe God's leading us, it is wise to make plans. It's, it's good stewardship, and quite honestly, that's oftentimes how things actually get done. You know, if you aim at nothing, you hit nothing 100% of the time. And, and to sit around spiritually and hyper-spiritualize, oh, I, just, I don't make plans. You're just going to end up arriving to a place where you're in a paralysis of analysis and you never do anything in life. To make plans is not wrong. James 4 just says we make plans, but we make them in pencil. And we give God the eraser. And James 4 speaks about that. If it's the will of the Lord, then we'll do this or do that, or we'll go to this city or that city, or we'll buy and sell. And, and that's the idea is, is we're going to do this. We believe it's the Lord, but we're also going to completely have a hands-off approach. And Lord, if you want to delay it or stop it, if it's your will. But the idea is it's okay to make plans. But what Paul understood is he had this flexible attitude where he was willing to adjust as needed. And he even utilized, I like the, to kind of look at it here. It's almost like a practical backup plan to accomplish what he saw was important. In case things didn't unfold and Paul thought, I, there are times before I wanted to go to an area and it didn't work out. Either Satan hindered me or God redirected me. So Paul was willing to find another avenue, you might say, to provide help and still serve in some form as possible. I almost sense Paul's mindset and what he's saying here is saying, look, in case I can't do what I prefer, or in case I get hindered from doing what I wish, I'm going to at least do what I can. I'm going to write a letter. I'll at least do the thing that I am able to do, which is the best possible help. And God used that hard attitude, think about it, to orchestrate something very wonderful in the big picture. I mean, think through this with me. If the Lord had not delayed Paul, because clearly he was delayed, they got the letter. If the Lord had not delayed Paul, likely he would have gone to Ephesus and he would have done what we are doing right now this morning. He would have delivered his thoughts and his instruction to the church verbally. And in that day, can I remind you, they did not have recording devices. They did not have podcasts. They did not have YouTube. So they couldn't retain content in the way that we, thankfully, we can retain content these days and have it available if someone's not present. Once that content was shared verbally in a message, the primary benefit of the content was lost forever. Probably had a whole new attitude in regards to not missing church once in a while. 
Because something really wonderful could have got said. And if you would have heard Paul's sermon last week, oh, did they record it? Nah. Oh, bro. You missed it, man. And in Paul's day, he would have delivered that verbally. There would have been no retaining of the content. However, because Paul was delayed and unable to get there, the Holy Spirit prompted his heart and in his flexible attitude, he wrote down his instruction in the form of a letter. He sent it to Timothy there. And as the result, think about this, folks, now millions of believers and thousands of churches throughout church history have benefited from the wonderful spiritual content and instruction of this New Testament letter because of the fact that Paul was flexible and because God delayed him. And look, this is just a great reminder, if I could, by way of application, the Bible teaches, Romans 8, what that God works all things together for what the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's not a promise if you don't love God. And that's not a promise if you're not following the calling of God. But if you're following God's calling and you love God, he says that he works all things. That means including everything and excluding nothing. Even the negative things. Even the disappointments of life. Even the delays of life that feel like denials in life. God works all things ultimately for the good. Look, this morning, perhaps you are here and maybe in some way in your current frustration over your circumstances or maybe your disappointment that's happened in some circumstantial situation may have you feeling like, well, man, I can't do this now or because of whatever, I can't or I'm not able to. Let me pause and say, listen, my question would be this, what can you do? What can you still do? Maybe you can't do A, or maybe because of the circumstantial disappointment or scenario, you can't do what you would like to do or you prefer to do, but I would say to you, what can you still do? Do that. Do the thing that you can do, whatever that little thing may be, whatever that different thing may be, because the reality is, Paul did what his secondary plan was. He wrote a letter, and honestly, it had way more benefit in the bigger picture. God used it to bless you and I and to bless believers on a much greater scale. And I think we have to remember this sometimes in life. God may, even through disappointments and letdowns and hindrances and turns that we weren't expecting in life, if you give God time and you keep believing in faith and you wait on the Lord and you continue to just keep moving forward, Trust me when I tell you God is a marvelous way if you just give him time to make something very beautiful come in the big picture. It may be a year down the road, three years, five years, ten years down the road. You know, when Jesus turned water to wine, they said of what his work was, they said, you saved the best for last. And God is a way to do that. And so Paul says, I'm writing these things, Timothy, in case I didn't get there. And we're thankful he did. And notice the terms here in verse 15 to describe the corporate or collective gathering of God's people. He describes us as meeting in the house of God as the church of the living God in verse 15. Now, though individually the Bible refers to us as a believer, a child of God, a Christian, those are terms for the individual follower of Christ, but God's word clearly teaches as well, as followers of Jesus, we are also joined and united together spiritually that we are to live as Christians interdependently doing life together. He refers here to our meeting time together as assembling, verse 15, he says, in the house of God. Now, again, certainly not concerned foremost with the structure, the physical building we gather in, but rather the meeting time of the people of God coming together with the Father, sons and daughters. That's the idea here of the house of God, the household of God's people, the family of God. The term implies a family experience, a household of God's people. And it also pictures the church family as being built by Jesus like a spiritual temple where God's presence manifests in the New Testament pictures both. So again, this idea of referring to the church as the house of God is God clearly wants us to grasp this idea that we are indeed a spiritual family. We're a spiritual household. 
And look, it's important to realize families are supposed to get together. That's what families do. Families do life together. They live interdependently upon one another. Even amidst our dysfunction and disagreements and challenges, we're supposed to spend time together and do life together. And the Bible teaches as God's children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to live interdependently, that we all have the same father, we're eternal brothers and sisters, and we share a family bond, and so we're supposed to operate like a family. And I don't know about you, to me, it has been one of the most wonderful things in my Christian walk to enjoy the benefit of the family of God. You know, for many of us, we may not have the best earthly family or the best earthly family relationships and dynamics with our biological family. Isn't it wonderful that God's given you a secondary, eternal family where you share a bond spiritually and love and care many times that runs much deeper in its devotion and its health and fruitfulness to do life together and journey through things together and help one another. And again, this is the idea that we would recognize this, that that is how we are to function as the church. And look, the thing that makes, quite honestly, any structure, right, become a house of God is not the special facility, but we might say it's the spiritual family. That's what makes any structure become the house of God. You know, over the time that I've been, you know, pastoring and, and, and planting churches, when I, you know, planted the church in Pennsylvania, we started out in a house, then we rented a theater, then we bought a little old country church building, then we bought a warehouse and renovated that. When I came here, again, we, we started a Bible study in a school, and then after meeting in the school, when we went to a Sunday morning service, then we were renting a different school, public school at that, but it became the house of God, brother. We were renting a public school on Sunday morning, setting up, and Wednesday nights, we were using a synagogue. Woo, imagine that. Because the school didn't work on a Wednesday night. I remember I went to one of the, to, to the synagogue. I asked the rabbi there if we could use his facility to rent and to host a, a midweek meeting. And he, he directly asked me, he said, can I ask, why would you as a Christian minister ask to use a Jewish synagogue on a Wednesday evening? And, and I said, well, twofold. I said, first of all, your Bible says, which I believe too, I will bless those who bless you. And I said, so I want to bless you with extra money. We want to give you money to use your facility. And so if that can be beneficial, so I want to bless you. And look, we, we love and support the nation of Israel and, and we're your friends. And, and I said, and the second reason is this, guess what I do on Wednesday nights? I told him, I teach the Old Testament. I said, so we're just going to be going through the Old Testament. So if you and your folks want to join us, we're just going to be teaching your book anyway. I promise I don't teach the New Testament on Wednesday nights. I'll be teaching through the Old Testament Come and join us. But again, that became the house of God. You know, here we are in a strip mall, but because we assemble here, it becomes the house of God because it's the house of God because of the family of God. That's what sanctifies it. It's the presence of God and it's God's people and his spirit being among us that makes this the house of God. And when we assemble together, coming into God's house, it's a family gathering time. And that should be our perspective when we come together. Really, this is a family gathering time, and God is in our midst. He's in his, our midst because his spirit is within us and among us. And so when we assemble, we need to have a reverent heart attitude that this isn't a religious gathering. This is a real family meeting time with God and his presence is among us. And I think that's very important because God help us if we ever reduce what we do when we assemble to just sort of a religious set of routines that we perform. I think that greatly diminishes, sadly, the reverence that we should have when we come together in the house of God. Because we should always remember the Father is among us and his authority is what's to be honored. And I think the more we keep that mindset close to us, it helps us each to grow, and if I could use this term, in our spiritual manners. Where in the same way, you know, when my kids were little, I didn't take them to someone else's house and let them cut loose and break this decoration and just act like nuts. No, this is someone's house, and you need to behave and use self-control and manners 
because we are in someone's house and you should show reverence for their home and for their household. And I think as God's people, sometimes it's important for us to realize we should have a degree of reverence when we're together in the house of God, to honor God's presence, to be sensitive to that, to care about that, to think about that and how we behave or conduct ourselves that we want to honor God's presence. You know, the New Testament also pictures the church family like a spiritual temple in a house in a sense as well. Ephesians 2 says, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and in him the whole building fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. First Peter 2 describes the same way that we're like living stones, each Christian perfectly shaped and fit together to make a spiritual temple, he says, where sacrifices of praise can be offered unto God. So again, very important that we realize that this church is a family gathering, that we're a spiritual structure like stones fit together differently so that God's presence can be manifest among us. Notice he also in verse 15 refers to the church there as the church of the living God. And that word church, the Greek term that's used, Ecclesia, that wasn't originally a spiritual word in the, in the Greek language. That word ecclesia that got taken and translated church, which we now understand, is a term that meant a special assembly that was called out from amongst the greater populace for a special purpose. It actually had initially kind of a political context where a group of people would come out from among the general population and they would assemble together with a set purpose that they wanted to operate towards. And so, of course, this became a very beautiful term because it describes spiritually what we are as the Lord's followers and as his family. In being saved by Jesus Christ, we are called out of the greater world population out there. And Jesus talks about, does he not, how we were taken out of the world. That is, he took us out of the system of the unsaved world that we all once were a part of. And in saving us, he made us a child of God. And now we are to assemble together, Ecclesia, we come together. We're an assembly of people set apart for a divine purpose. That is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to do the things that matter for his kingdom. We are a divinely set apart community a spiritual assembly to fulfill a purpose. So I say that to say this, the very essence of what the word church, even by definition, means a called out assembly for a set purpose, it implies assembly is required. That's what the term means. The very term means that. And that is why Hebrews chapter 10 tells us in a fundamental way, part of God's plan, he says that we're commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And then he adds, as is the manner of some. In other words, the writer of Hebrews was saying, look, it is currently the manner of some Christians to not assemble anymore. And he says, this is not God's will, that we're not to forsake the assembling. There's no such thing as, oh, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't need the church. That's like saying I can be a headless body. Doesn't work. Last time I checked, Jesus is the head. You take off my head, my body's done. We must be connected to the body of Christ. We must be connected to the head. And so it's very important to realize the whole essence of church means assembling together. And notice he calls us the church, and I love the term he uses, the church of the living God. Notice, we're to have an ongoing experience and encounters with a God who's alive. Again, so important to recall that. We're not coming together for dead religious routines and religious rituals. We're not pulling levers and pushing buttons on a Sunday morning. We're not just doing routines religiously. We are coming together to have a real encounter with God, the living God who's among us. We should be coming with expectant hearts and faith and anticipation that we're meeting together with God, a God who listens to us, a God who speaks to us, a God who touches lives and helps us and ministers, a God who provides living power by his spirit to change lives, to transform us as he's working in our midst. And we need to, folks, we need to stay aware of that crucial reality because that makes a vast difference in the meeting times of God's family. 
that we come together not just doing spiritual and religious disciplines and routines. And look, it's a good routine. I love it. I love it. My life is very routine. Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, and then all the craziness in between. But it's very routine. But at the same time, we don't want it to be a religious ritual. We want it to be about a real, Lord, I am coming to meet with you. I believe we're having a meeting with God that when we come together, Lord, your presence is among us and that we're being open to that with anticipation. And I tell you, that changes the dynamic of the freedom of God's spirit to move among a meeting when we realize that we are the church of the living God. He then zeroes in the end of verse 15, talking to us there about one of the major purposes, as we described, of the church's existence. Look what he says, the church of the living God, he then says, which is what? The pillar, verse 15, and the ground of truth. Now, those two terms, ground and pillar, the word ground speaks of a building's bulwark, or we might describe it as today, or the foundation of a building, what it's rested and built upon. And the pillar describes what upholds the walls or the roof. That's what pillars do. They uphold things to keep it standing. And the architectural imagery was very picturesque, especially in Ephesus, where there were all types of temples and ornate buildings built all around them. But here, the Bible gives us a primary reason for the church's existence to find again. He says the church is to be both the foundation of truth in the world, and we also are to be those who are upholding, like pillars, truth in the world. Now, why is that a critical function? Because it doesn't take rocket science to realize we live in a dark and a decaying world system where the Bible says is under the sway and influence of the wicked one, the devil, and therefore lies and deception are the primary methodology of the devil. Jesus said he's the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language or native tongue. So the primary endeavor of the devil operating in an unsaved world system is to promote lies and deception and falsehood and to confuse the minds of people and ruin lives and destroy souls. So what does God call the church to be? He calls the church to be the antidote in the world to counteract lies, to be the epicenter of truth, to be the place where truth is defined and also where truth is propagated and disseminated from that we are the launching pad for where truth goes out into this world. Look, I said earlier in our study in 1 Timothy, and I'll say it again, we as the church, not the government, are to be the foundation of what truth is and what truth is not. We as the church, not the government, not media, not school systems, are also to be who upholds the truth and who stands for the truth and continues to present the truth morally and spiritually in the world. The church, because we know the one true God and we have the truth of God's word given to us right here, we are therefore to be the foundation in human society for determining what is true and what is false. What is right morally and what is wrong morally? What is correct spiritually and what is errant spiritually? We are to be those who help society to understand what truth is, the truth about God, the truth about God's will and God's design for humanity, his standards, his requirements, the truth about all matters spiritual of the soul and heaven and hell and how to experience either one of those, what's required through Christ, the truth of what God expects and God offers and what God promises through his son, the truth of the future plans of God. We are to be the foundation of what is true morally in regards to every arena of human experience, in regards to things of gender and male and female and the fact that God said from the beginning, I created them male and female to simple, exclusive. That was before Genesis 3 where sin came into the world. Before sin existed in the world, it was very clear, male, female. And someone needs to have enough courage to say, listen, I'm not buying the nonsense. This, we have the foundation truth. This is the foundation of truth. 
And quite candidly, just do a little search down history's lane and you will realize that isn't it amazing that for centuries and centuries, before the last just few years, it wasn't rocket science to everybody. Traditional conservative moral values was what everybody predominantly subscribed to. And it's because from Adam and Eve, humanity knew what the foundation of the truth of such things were. It was evident. If you ask a five-year-old before you indoctrinate them with polluted ideas, what's a boy, what's a girl, what's male, what's female, they can tell you. Because they know innately. And again, it is so crucial in all the matters of what is moral and spiritual, what is appropriate for marriages, and, and, and what is God's design for marriage? What is God's design for child raising? And again, we are to be as the church utilizing the word of God as the standard to define the basis for humanity and the world to understand what truth is. That is our function. Look, that is why it's so important. In order to do that, we have to have a serious commitment as the church to the word of God. If we are going to be the place where truth is determined and we provide the foundation and basis for truth, then we as God's people have to take serious the truth of God's word. That's why we take serious as a ministry the truth of God's word here. It's not for the sake of being an institution that's just doing intellectual, spiritual. That's not the idea. It's because we have to be the foundation of truth here. It's our calling. It's, it's our priority. It's what we're intended to be. Somebody has got to be the one to determine those things clearly. And he says the church is not only the foundation of the truth, but also the pillar of the truth. And pillars, as I said, they uphold things. They keep things standing. So not only is the church to be the place where it's the foundation of what is truth in all matters, but the church also has a calling to uphold the truth like a pillar, to uphold what we believe is true from God's word, to uphold standards and, and, and what we stand for despite what culture is saying and going to say. Somebody has to hold the line. That's the church's job. Our job as the church is to take a strong stand and not deviate or compromise. And also, this is to be a meeting place where God's people are equipped with the knowledge of the truth and then sent back out into the world to be salt and light that's needed in a dark and decaying world. Paul said in Philippians 2, there's the church, we are called to go out into the midst of a crooked and perverse generation to shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. And the only way that happens, folks, is that when the church comes together, not for entertainment or pep rowdies or a social club, but they come together and they are spiritually equipped and instructed and empowered and enabled and strengthened to go out and then as Christians be pillars in the society to uphold the truth with our families and in our jobs and in our school systems in a dark and a confused world. And what is the foremost truth a church needs to maintain the foundation of and to uphold? Well, that's what verse 16 tells us. Here's the main thing. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. So Paul shows the greatest truth we are to be the foundation of and that we are to constantly be upholding really is the eternal plan of God through the embodiment of truth, which is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And of all truth, that is the primary thing, he says, without controversy, that we need to uphold. He says there, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, again, we've said before, whenever we see that term mystery, musterion in the Greek, it's a term that speaks not of something that's hard to understand, but it's a term that speaks of something that was once hidden, and at a certain point, it was then revealed or disclosed, like pulling the sheet off of a statue. It's there, but at one time it was covered, and then a revelation happened, and that's the idea that the church and the gospel message, it's a mystery in the sense that for time it was not seen, but through Christ, everything came to, to light. It became evident. And what became the revelation regarding godliness? That is the marvelous way how God intends for us to become devoted to God and how to experience a godly life. And that process, he says, is connected 
to what God performed in his love and wisdom through his son. And he uses in verse 16 here, these six kind of stanzas to declare doctrinal truths that are essential to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing he says there is that God was manifested, the idea is personally revealed, in the flesh. That is in a human body. So, of course, that's a reference to what we call the incarnation, that God, in the person of his son, became a human being. Right? Isaiah prophesied that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And that is exactly who Jesus was. At a set time, God miraculously placed the life of his eternal son into the womb of a virgin woman so that she may then give birth in a virgin way so that Jesus could be fully God and fully human simultaneously so that he could become the perfect mediator, as we talked about in the last chapter, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So in Jesus, God took a second nature. He added to his deity, he added humanity, a second nature to his deity, so that he might do two things. He might reveal God, that's why God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus revealed God as a man living among us, God living in human form. And Jesus also came, of course, to rescue mankind from sin, to be the perfect mediator as the God-man. Secondly, he says of the Lord, he also was justified in the Spirit or vindicated by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit validated who Jesus was again and again. At Jesus' water baptism, remember, the Spirit descended upon Jesus, what? To authenticate who he was. Because as the Spirit descended upon Jesus to validate who he was, it was then that God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit vindicated that this was the eternal son of God. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me to preach the good news and to bind up and heal the brokenhearted. He says thirdly as well, that Jesus also was seen by angels. That is the eternal angelic beings created by God were able to bear testimony, this is indeed the eternal Son of God. And the angels who had been worshiping God around heaven's throne for all of eternity, when they saw God come to earth in the person of Jesus, they were able as angelic spiritual beings to validate that indeed is him. That's why when you see the birth announcement of Jesus, who's doing the birth announcements? The angels. It was the angels who made the birth announcement to Mary and to Joseph and the shepherds. This is the Savior. This is God come in flesh. This is the Son of God. And it was the angels validating who he was. The angels ministered to Jesus in Gethsemane. And even after the resurrection, who's there at the tomb when they come validating this Jesus was crucified, but he is now risen. Why do you look for the dead or why do you look for the living among the dead? And it was the angels that testified again who Jesus was and that he had died for sins and risen again. He says, fourthly, in our text here, that Jesus also was preached or proclaimed among the Gentiles. Again, the word Gentile speaks of any non-Jewish nation. And here he describes how after Jesus accomplished his work, the ultimate plan of God was first to bring salvation to the Jews but then to proclaim the salvation of God's eternal work through his son to all nations. That's why Jesus said, go and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. And as you look at the book of Acts, that's what you see, the gospel continually, progressively going outward to all the Gentile nations. And look, it is essential regarding who Jesus is and what he accomplished that that be preached and proclaimed to all nations. That's part of God's plan, not just what Jesus did, but that it be proclaimed and announced and offered to all people. He says then, verse uh, 16, going on next, he was also believed on in the world. And that describes how humanity experiences salvation. It's by believing upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he did and receiving it for ourselves that salvation happens. Acts 16 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved saved. 
In our same letter, 1 Timothy, we read in chapter 1, that we believe on him, that's Jesus, for everlasting life. So this is essential, that Jesus be announced, but that there be a response. It is only by believing upon those things for yourself personally and receiving them that a person can experience the salvation of Christ. And then finally, he says of Jesus that he was then received up in glory. So again, after Jesus died for sin and rose the third day, 40 days after being on the earth in his glorified, resurrected body, the Bible tells us he then ascended back up into heaven, returning to the place at the right hand of the Father where he once came from. Acts chapter 1 says it this way, when Jesus had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, there's the angels again involved, saying, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come again in like manner as you saw him go in to heaven. So right now, Jesus sits as a resurrected, victorious king upon his throne in his glory, where he now operates there as savior and mediator and high priest and intercessor in the finished work. And the wonderful thing is that one day, that Jesus that was received up in glory, he's also coming back in glory. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the son of man will come in the clouds with power and great glory. And see, look, the mystery of godliness is this marvel that this same Jesus who was raised up and is reigning in glory at the same time, the Bible says, and here's the mystery, that same Jesus also dwells within you and I as believers. The Bible says Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. So in this marvelous way, Jesus is reigning in heaven in glory, and yet by his spirit, he imparts his life to us, Christ in us. And look, that's the mystery of how wretched, rotten, messed up, broken people like you and I become godly because Jesus works in us and he changes us and he makes us different as we simply yield our lives over to him. That's why Paul proclaimed, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the marvelous mystery of godliness, that Jesus Christ can live in you and make you what you could never make yourself to be beyond giving you the assurance of heaven. What a blessed thing. Let's stand together. Let's pray.